I would love to work with a storyteller. <laughs> we, I would say that we figured out a way to measure, you know, those stories. Um, and I think maybe we will find a way to tell a new story, which is that right now we are, we are, our data shows us and our story says that we are on a path still for fossil fuel dependency. But if we change the way that we look at it and use our methodology as a lens, we can take different actions in the plot and accelerate a decarbonized energy system. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. And on this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Christina Hoika of Uni uh, York University about her research team's work about modeling the diffusion of low carbon innovations. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I think that to understand a process as vast and complex as the current energy transition, we need a structure, a framework to help us make sense of all that information that goes into the intense disruption of the global energy system that we're seeing uh, already today. The study we'll be discussing today can help us construct that framework. So welcome to Energy Talks, Christina. Thanks for having me today. Now, look, um, your work is, uh, you know, I tried to read the, the academic article and it's complex. It's, it's over my head. I'm above my pay grade, as, as the kids say. <laughs> Uh, so, but I did read some of the, you know, your blog posts that you wrote about it. And, and so I, I think I've got a, a decent understanding, but maybe we could start with, if you could give our listeners a simple explanation of what you and your team did and the model that they came up with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that we know in order to transition uh, to a low carbon or a renewable energy system is that we definitely need the demand side to participate in this transition, to take actions. Um, and the demand side, we mean it could be households or individuals or businesses or organizations. Uh, we also know that for an energy transition to happen, we have to have system change because we are in path dependency we're in something called carbon lock-in. And so our research question was, well, how can we understand the role of the demand side in unlocking system change? And an important piece of that was to think about the diffusion of low carbon innovations to the demand side. And we wanted to understand a few different things. One aspect was what are those innovations? And then we also wanted to understand how do we uh, inhibit or um, drive their diffusion into a market. And then the last thing was, well, how do those innovations then, once they're taken up by the market, how would they impact on the energy system? And if we think about how they impact on the energy system, would that change the types of innovations that we should be driving or inhibiting in an energy system? Well, I've had in, uh, interviews with other energy experts about this transition. And one of the points that gets made over and over again about when we're discussing the pace of how fast this you know, transition will occur, uh, because those in the, in the past have been fairly slow, as Dr. Vaclav Smeal mm -hmm. continually reminds us. Yes. And the point that the economists make is that inertia counts. 
And this particular energy system that we have based on fossil fuels, which I think still make up around 82% of the world's primary energy uh, yep. consumption, has tremendous uh, inertia. I mean, there's a lot mm -hmm. of money invested in the system that's, systems that supply us with oil, gas, and coal, and the systems that consume oil, gas, and coal uh, to create these, you know, what, what we consume. And is that inertia uh, something that you considered when uh, constructing your model? Yes, we did. Yeah. And the way that we considered that particular type of inertia was that for every innovation that we got and uh, that we, we looked at, um, and we looked at 131 innovations in one particular context. So the types of innovations we were looking at might be something like the replacement of your natural gas furnace. It could also be the installation of a heat pump. It could be uh, using energy storage or an electric vehicle. So those are the types of innovations that we looked at. And for each innovation, we looked at three characteristics of disruption of an energy system. And one characteristic of disruption that we looked at was its potential to contribute to decarbonization. And um, in that potential, we looked at whether an innovation might reinforce the path dependency of the fossil fuel system. So one example that came up was um, a natural gas for, uh, furnace replacement. So you would think, okay, it's more efficient. Um, it's reducing energy use, uh, but in our coding system, it's reinforcing the fossil fuel energy system because it's making the use of a fossil fuel more efficient, but not replacing or eliminating the use of a fossil fuel. Uh, whereas we found that um, innovations, for instance, that were focused on energy conservation, like a deep energy retrofit, uh, for to the building envelope of a building that can reduce um, the use of energy in that building somewhere between 50 and 80%. So we considered that disruptive because that then lends support to other disruptive innovations like relying on a heat pump or relying on um, no carbon forms of uh, energy for heating and cooling. So um, we, so we coded all of the innovations on a scale of minus two to plus two and minus two was how system reinforcing the innovation was and a plus two was how disruptive that innovation could be. We also did that um, on two other dimensions. One other dimension we did it on was how much the innovation, its characteristics were democratizing the system. And by that we mean was the incumbent, so usually an energy utility, were they gaining control over the energy system with that innovation? Or was the community gaining more control over the energy system with that innovation? So one example of that would be a feed-in tariff, uh, joining a cooperative that's community owned, uh, that would take power away from uh, the incumbent and put it towards a community. And so would municipal ownership and control over an innovation. The last uh, dimension we looked at was something called, we did looked at what we would call hardware decentralization. And for that, what we looked at was basically was the, the scale of the technology um, moving, was it moving towards 
relying on large scale centralized technology like thermal generation or nuclear, or was it moving us more towards uh, clusters of innovations, renewable energy, electric vehicles, um, and the innovations that we know are lay the groundwork for a renewable energy transition. So that was the third dimension of disruption or system reinforcement we looked at. Is it fair to say that the direction we're headed in and should be headed in is a decentralized clean energy system? Because it sounds like if out of those three uh, variables that you just discussed, uh, two of them deal primarily around the de who controls things as opposed to whether it, it reduces carbon greenhouse gas emissions within the energy system. So is, is the preferred system or is the, I'm not sure what I'm getting at here, but, but is uh, how important is control versus GHG emission reduction? Um, I think all three dimensions are important uh, for different reasons, um, but the importance of control in some ways, um, I'm not sure if we tested this yet, but this would be an interesting one to test um, to see if they go hand in hand. We haven't tested it yet. So you're giving me another idea of a, of a correlation we can run. Um, basically, in, a, in an energy transition to zero fossil fuels, there's many technologies that you can use, but the most predominant one we expect are renewables. And those in literature are more likely to be taken up and implemented if they're more democratically owned or controlled. And that means if um, the demand side has and communities have more choice in terms of how the decisions are made and who gets the benefits and if the decisions are transparent. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because there's a fair amount of debate over the role of electri electricity utilities in inhibiting the adoption of small scale solar. Because, exactly. And, and also the concern by, of larger scale distributed energy by, by industrial and commercial customers because the utilities, which are highly centralized, are really worried about, about losing, uh, losing revenue when say big or small customers leave their grid because they're self-generating. And therefore you could see that uh, decentralization, the, the shift of control and democratizing of control over to, to many consumers is, could, could then speed up the adoption of, of uh, solar, for instance. Have, have I got that correct? Yes, yes. And it could be that there will be many different business models out there and many different um, you know, scales of democratization, but it is a very important consideration in the transition because we need wide scale participation in a transition and democratization also brings about uh, distribution of benefits. Gotcha. Let's talk about what constitutes a disruption or how things get disrupted. And I've had a couple of interesting interviews with Tony Siba. Okay. So he's the Stanford lecturer and founder of Rethink X and he's, he's uh, Disruption, technology disruption is, is his area of expertise. And he mm -hmm. says things get disrupted when costs fall 
by a factor of four to 10 times. So he's mm. talking about, for instance, autonomous uh, electric vehicles uh, and mobility as a service, robo taxis. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, he mm -hmm. says that's going to uh, se uh, severely disrupt uh, transportation in the United States because it basically lowers the cost of per kilometer to pennies. So why mm -hmm. would you have mm -hmm. a private vehicle when you can just go on your smartphone and, and call for a robo taxi uh, to come and get you? And the cost is, is peanuts if you want to go downtown or you know send the kids off to to soccer practice. And then if you apply that to wind and solar and batteries and, and other applications, uh, you once things are abundant and cheap, then that tends to be highly disruptive. Would you agree with, uh, with Tony Siva? We used a literature called Sustainability Transitions. So I'm not, I'm not familiar with his work. The definition of disruptive that we used, I would, I would distinguish disruptive from cost in our, in our lit review. Disruptive um, in sustainability transitions is that they look at socio-technical transitions. So we would look at an innovation and call it socio-technical because it goes, it diffuses into a technical system and a social system. So we were interested in, so disruption in that lexicon or in that field is around the fact that an innovation could disrupt the technological system, but it could also disrupt social systems. It could bring about new political beliefs, new societal values, and that type of a thing. And disruption is not always necessarily a good thing. Um, and in our scale, it, we took the, the idea of disruption and our scale is measuring the potential for disruption. So we're not saying it's disrupting. And we measured that by thinking about how it could have an impact on other systems. Um, now, in terms of the cost component, we looked at the three dimensions of disruption, decarbonization, democratization, and decentralization. And then we also looked at the types of policy and what we call legitimacy supports that the innovation receives. And I think um, he's talking about disruption in terms of its ability to diffuse, which is very critical. How do we diffuse disruptive innovations? And so we looked at those policy supports and we did find a statistically significant relationship with economic policy supports, but um, with the diffusion of innovations. But what we also found was a statistically significant relationship in the negative direction between decarbonization and economic policy supports. So what we found was that economic policy supports are supporting uh, regime reinforcing or uh, path dependent fossil fuel innovations. Sure, and uh, some examples are, and I think you alluded to this earlier, uh, that it could be the replacement of coal uh, mm -hmm. by natural gas in, in power generation. And mm -hmm. there's some debate in Alberta, for example, of, you know, they had, uh, I think, 55% of their power is generated by coal not that long ago. They want to mm -hmm. get down to, to zero by, by 2030. And so there's going to be some natural gas that displaces coal. But now you've locked in natural gas and exactly. in its emissions for the next 30 to 50 years, as opposed to going to maybe hydrogen or more renewable, something, something like that. And, and so, uh, so I, it sounds like I, I understand your point correctly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk. Uh, well, I, I want to make another point about disruption. 
And, and that is the, the distinction between cost and value. And my mm -hmm. example for this often is the iPhone. So the mm -hmm. iPhone comes out in 2007. It's very expensive. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's much more expensive than a flip phone. But whereas the flip phone can do six things, the iPhone with all of its apps, because it's basically a computer that can make cell calls, it can do 6,000 things. And mm -hmm. so I'm willing to pay much, much more for a smartphone and a data plan uh, than I am for a flip phone uh, because it essentially becomes, you know, my office in a pocket and, and, uh, and that has an enormous value for me. And, and I think we too often uh, ignore the value equation in, in these discussions because things that are more expensive can actually, as the iPhone illustrates, can bring disruption and tremendous benefits, even though they cost more. Yeah, um, we did not look specifically at value. And I agree with you completely on what you're saying. And, and I would say one of the things that our methodology does is that it lays the groundwork to bring out the value of the various innovations that need to be diffused in an energy system. And an example of that is that we know that in order to have a renewable energy transition, another area of my work is, well, how do we have clusters of innovations that go together? And by that, I mean, how do you cluster like renewables with electric vehicles and that type of a thing? And what our framework allows you to do then is to look at, are there complementary innovations getting you know, similar supports? Are they both getting enough support so that you have optimal diffusion so that you get optimal value? And right now we don't think about that and we don't know how to measure it. And um, prior, we have, we've only seen one other study that measured the diffusion of multiple innovations. And most of the time we measure the diffusion of singular innovations and we don't look at very many, a broad range of factors for their diffusion. So I think in order to, for us to derive value from the energy system, the methodology is really important to get us to that point. Well, let's talk about this uh, as a tool for policymakers, because at the end of the day, that's really what it comes down to. Yes. And I'm, I'm fond of saying that the energy transition now is inevitable. The, it really, it, 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 to, to Siba's point, you know, uh, wind and solar are cheaper than, than coal and natural gas. And, and nuclear um, and electric vehicles on a per kilometer basis, the levelized cost of driving are, are cheaper than internal combustion engines. So the, the, the cost issue, I think, uh, for these electricity oriented technologies has been decided. Uh, it it mm -hmm. will be lower cost, but then the question becomes how fast? And, mm -hmm. it, and a lot of these policies uh, are geared around how fast a, a, a technology is going to diffuse into the economy and displace the fossil fuel oriented technology that uh, is, is creating emissions and we want to, to mitigate. So um, where, what would be your uh, take on that? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of policy applications for, uh, for the methodology. So the, fir the first application are the characteristics that I mentioned, where we offer a method of measuring the impact that the innovation can have on system change. And in that case, what you can do then is say, well, we need, in order to accelerate the transition, we probably need to support the more disruptive innovations, particularly the ones that have strong potential for decarbonization. 
And in the case of Ontario, what we can see is that we have a lot more policy supports for the, the innovations that reinforce our fossil fuel dependency. And so what you can do then is look at the innovations that you want to support in a, in a different light. The other um, way that it can be used uh, as a policy tool is that we think it can be scaled to different locations. Um, the idea of it is that the boundary would be the particular energy system that you're interested in. So for example, in the case of say a neighborhood microgrid, there's no reason why you can't look at the diffusion of innovations around that particular system. Um, also, as I mentioned, what we also know in this transition is that we're going to need to have um, energy users adopt multiple innovations. And so if you look at aspirational policy documents about the transition, what you'll see are people with an electric car and they've got a heat pump and they've got a solar panel on the roof and they've got demand response and they have all of these different things. But in reality, we're not measuring that. And we're not, we don't have policies that say we need to support the complementary diffusion of multiple technologies and innovations and how they fit together. So that's another really critical point is, is to measure all of the in innovations that are of interest um, and whether uh, and how they fit together and whether you're giving enough support to, um, to multiple at a time. Um, there's another way uh, that the methodology can support policy, which is that we developed four energy justice indicators. And in that case, uh, on each innovation, you can take a look at who the innovation is going to, who's being targeted, and also who's not being targeted by the innovation. And that way you can also look for gaps in uh, justice and equity concerns in the, ener in the energy system. Right, I mean, we see that, uh, we saw that in Texas when they had the big blizzard and uh, uh, poor people in racialized neighborhoods suffered disproportionately more than those in middle-class and upper-class neighborhoods where they had access to generators and, and other supports that uh, the others, uh, the poorer neighbors uh, didn't have. So I, I think absolutely. that would be an example. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk, let's continue our discussion about policy because I mean, yeah. I, you know, at, at Energy Media, we follow uh, policy in various jurisdictions across Canada, the United States and Europe quite closely. And a couple of observations that might be relevant to your methodology. And one is policy tends to be a pretty blunt instrument. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's not always really well understood. Uh, all, all you have to do is look at the discussion around carbon pricing. Yeah. in various jurisdictions, what, what a problem that is, and how how the other form of policy instruments are required to complement carbon pricing in order to achieve the goals that that, uh, that one wants. And and the, the problem that political parties like in, the, in Canada, for instance, the Conservative Party of Canada is being pilloried because of its, its uh, weak, we'll say, climate plan, and because it, it uh, for ideological reasons doesn't like carbon pricing and therefore you limit the amount of policy instruments that you can bring to the bring to the table so the if if there are any implications from your for your methodology for policy making what would be the the top two or three do you think 
Yeah. Uh, so our literature review, when we we also looked at policy supports, also on um, a scale of whether they're inhibiting or driving the innovation. And what we found in the literature was that usually they find that instruments that are innovation specific, and I don't mean by that a certain brand or manufacturer, but what I mean is, you know, we support photovoltaic, uh, solar photovoltaic, rather than, you know, renewables in general, that type of a thing. Um, those tend to have stronger support for the diffusion of innovation rather than general policies, which is what a carbon tax would be. And I'm not saying that there's no use for carbon tax. Um, usually we want to have a policy mix, but for a particular innovation to diffuse widely, uh, an innovation specific support is important. The other thing that we found that was um, quite interesting is that uh, discourse is uh, statistically significant in terms of um, in terms of supporting uh, disruptive innovations was what we found. And what that means is we looked at whether an innovation has the support of a range of actors and networks. And we also looked at whether an innovation has um, what the discourse is around that. And what we looked at in terms of discourse were things like, was it included in uh, policy plans or targets? across um, a range of different actors and stakeholders at a lot of different levels of government. And so what we found is that in policymaking, sorry about that, it's not only, um, it's not only economic policy, but it's also, uh, we looked at regulatory instruments and we also looked at knowledge creation and diffusion instruments. So like training and labor and that kind of a thing. But we also looked at legitimacy, and that was an important factor. And so creating um, widespread legitimacy support for an innovation will support the diffusion of disruptive innovations is what we found. I want to bring up an example of that from the literature. And uh, uh, if I remember correctly, and no doubt someone will be scurrying to their literature uh, reviews to find out if I've got it right. But if, I remember Rogers doing a, a study back in like 1937, very yeah. famous study about the diffusion of hybrid corn in Iowa. And what they would do yeah. is they would bring these uh, uh, farmers together and they would find one or two innovative farmers and they would bring the other neighboring farmers to this uh, uh, innovative farmers uh, farm and then they would we hold you know meetings uh, and demonstrations and so they would not only educate the farmers about the benefits of hybrid corn uh, but you would have a champion there who could say from experience that it had been beneficial and then the farmers could talk amongst themselves and so you had this diffusion of ideas that mm -hmm. you sped up with with this policy uh, mm -hmm. and it seems and, and when I look at uh, the, the misinformation and disinformation we see in today's debate around batteries and renewables and electric vehicles and on and on and on, I think often think back to that study about hybrid corn and how that kind of an approach, which is so simple, I mean, it's just demonstrating success and letting people, you know, talk amongst themselves, uh, you know, about it and and then into their networks so that they support the diffusion of the, the innovation. Have, have I understood this correctly? Um, 
Yes. And I think um, I'm not as familiar with agriculture, but yes, in the, in the sense that the more networks and the more, um, and we, we looked at it as a complex system. So we, we looked at uh, four policy domains in our research that we said these influenced the diffusion of innovations. They were climate change and environment policy, energy policy, industrial innovation and science policy, and then um, social innovation policy. And we kept those domains as separate. And we said, these can all influence uh, the diffusion and the legitimacy. And what our scaling showed and what our findings showed, we said that there was stronger support when there was more legitimacy or actors across those domains. When you, when you had at least two of those domains rather than one singular domain. So our concern was, for example, the energy sector might all be true believers and you know this is exactly the innovation we need, but if it's not translating across to the other sectors, then it doesn't have as strong support. And uh, so that was what um, we examined in the research. And we and and going back to those characteristics, what we found was when there was more legitimacy support across those domains, there was more support for democratization and decentralization. Well, I want to uh, ask you then about a, a particular hobby horse of mine, which is the yeah. of narrative versus facts. And my observation, because I participate in a lot of public discussion around the importance of energy narratives and climate narratives. Yeah. It is that for the average, you know, citizen is not that influenced by facts. And you often see advocates, uh, particularly in the fossil fuel industry, going, we only educated people. If they only understood better, they would support us. And that's not how this works. What happens are that, is that there are these broad narrative discussions, you know, uh, fossil fuels are bad, renewable energy is good, electric cars are better than, you know, the, and then you tell stories to reinforce those, those narratives and people connect emotionally with the stories. And that's what really influences them. It's not the, it's not data. It's not an explanation of how things work. It's the stories that make, help them engage with topics around which they simply don't have, you know, the, the, the tools with which to, analyze and sort and categorize all this information that, as you do. And, and, I, and so I've always thought that, that um, you know, these education programs uh, are just a waste of money. They're a waste of time. And we really need more storytellers, uh, you know, to further this, the discourse that you're talking about. I would love to work with a storyteller. <laughs> we, I would say that we figured out a way to measure, you know, those stories um, and I think maybe we will find a way to tell a new story, which is that right now we are, we are, our data shows us and our story says that we are on a path still for fossil fuel dependency. But if we change the way that we look at it and use our methodology as a lens, we can take different actions in the plot and accelerate a decarbonized energy system. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, some of these, uh, I'm looking for a, a practical example, I, I guess maybe electric vehicles. I mean, electric vehicles uh, are a superior drive. 
Uh, I've driven a few. I don't own one. Mm-hmm. Wish I did, but I, I have driven, and they're a lot. Completely, just love them as a as a, a you know driving experience. Uh, their cost per kilometer is much lower. And they have it's it's a it gets back to value and cost. I I, I value the driving experience. I appreciate uh, the cost savings uh, per kilometer and so on, but really. What needs to happen, I think, is that we need to tell more stories about that. And very, I see this on social media all the time. Uh, people who are considering EV uh, buying an electric vehicle are in groups and forums going, can you get, share your experience with me? Uh, what's this like? You know, what's it like ha- having a, uh, an electric vehicle in Saskatchewan where your winters are 30 below? Am I going to have enough range? And, and all those stories need to be shared. And creating uh, forums where we can share them and and reinforce those bigger narratives, I think is a, is a critical and be too often ignored by policymakers and by you know trade associations and and advocates. Uh, anyway, just a, an observation on my part. Yeah, one of the issues we had with our data set was we did actually measure what you're talking about in terms of knowledge creation and diffusion. And I am aware of some studies specific to electric vehicles about how energy users um, become innovators and share information. In our analysis, we didn't find a statistically significant correlation. And it could be that um, that's not a useful measurement in the way that we measured it for this particular model. But what we found was that the correlation was by chance. Um, so it's, it is, we did measure that, uh, not all of the things that you mentioned because it was a very large data set and we looked at what we, we could. Um, but I think that in terms of, um, that is an important factor and I, I'm not sure how well we measured it in our data set, in our methodology. Fair enough. Yeah, and I, I think there could be more um, research into how to measure that or, or the different types of indicators. And I think in that, in terms of, again, going back to policymakers and how they can support it because they would need indicators to look at that. Isn't that the conclusion of every academic <laughs> study is that we need more study? And, and fair enough. I mean, you, you've raised your, your study, many very interesting questions that need to be explored. So, and, and plus that gives us fodder for more podcasts. So absolutely, absolutely support that. So let's talk about the conclusions. We'll wrap up the podcast uh, with the discussion of the conclusions. Yeah. And uh, give us the, uh, the top uh, couple of conclusions from your study, please. Yeah. Um, well, we found um, a lot of interesting correlations. We found uh, negative statistically significant ones are the ones I'll mention. So we found negative correlations between economic policy supports and decarbonization and democratization characteristics, which means that the supports were supporting um, fossil fuel regimes and the incumbents. Uh, We also found um, positive correlations between legitimacy and decentralization and democratization. So we found that if you want to have more decentralization and democratization, having strong legitimacy supports, which means discussions across those silos and at different scales, those will help a lot. Um, We also found, interestingly, significantly uh, positive correlations between legitimacy through discourse framing and economic policy instruments. So we can influence those economic policy instruments 
through discourse framing. Um, and the other findings that we had around diffusion were that uh, we found a negative, uh, a positive correlation between policy, economic policy instruments and dissemination rate. Um, but we also found uh, um, a negative correlation between decarbonization and dissemination rate. So we found that the more the, the innovations that would support um, decarbonization were not diffusing as much as the innovations that were supporting um, the fossil fuel regime. So those are some of our, our big findings is that uh, legitimacy through discourse is a really important way to make change. I want to uh, uh, talk about that last one, which is the that the policy support for decarbonization technologies and innovations is less than or weaker than the policy support for for fossil fuel innovations. And you can see that in Canada in particular as provincial governments like Alberta and Ontario, and even at the federal level, you know, where they're, they're trying to ease the, the transition for different groups, whether it's coal workers or it's whatever it might, what it might be. And that in a way ends up strengthening the system or perpetuating the system longer than had they just dealt with it decisively and, and transitioned to something else. Have I got that right? Um, yeah, that, that there is support for innovations that are, um, that are uh, whole, yeah, reinforcing the current system um, and delaying change, yeah. So would someone like yourself then, as, as the next phase of the study, go in and take some of those innovations uh, or take a list of innovations and say, look, here are some examples and case studies of those innovations that support the existing uh, uh, energy system, uh, high emitting energy system. And here are some examples that support the decarbonization of, of that particular system. And once we know uh, how that they're positively or negatively correlated, then we can say, aha, maybe we should put less resources and effort into the ones that uh, reinforce the status quo and shift those resources over to the ones that decarbonize. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also because innovation is so critically important and we, we don't always know what's out there. Um, the other piece of the narrative that's really important is how to evaluate that a particular innovation that, that comes up. Um, how should we evaluate a new innovation and then in terms of its potential to decarbonize, democratize, decentralize. Well, Christina, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate your insights. I'm not sure that we've uh, uh, solved the Rubik's cube about decarbonization and policy and innovations, but I, I think there, this conversation included plenty of insights and some ideas on how to, you know, we can kind of structure our own thinking about this uh, and make more effective choices and particularly, you know, engage in discourse around, uh, around innovation. So thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. And thank you so much for your interest in our research.